So why did River Life plant a second campus? The answer is simple, to grow. And I've got really great news. We are growing. In fact, here's a graph. I've been crunching some numbers lately, and here's a graph of our weekly attendance combined between both campuses since we started in-person services again in February. And as you can see, we're growing, and it's wonderful. Now, there is that big gap right in the middle there. That was Easter, because I've included Easter. It would have been like twice as tall as any one of those bars. It would have just been off the screen, so I cut that from the data. But it's amazing, and it's wonderful, and it's encouraging. After a couple years of, of no growth and low attendance and COVID and quarantine, it's wonderful to see God's family growing and gathering. So be encouraged that we are growing. And so over this series, I've talked about three different reasons why we want to grow. First is growth is God's plan for humanity. It's God's plan for you and me. Second is growth is Jesus' mission for us. Jesus desires that we grow. And then third, growth is essential for our spiritual health. Now there's one more reason. It's our last week of this series. There's one more reason why we launched River Life Brooklyn Park. And that is the world needs God's love. The world needs God's love. So have you ever thought much about what the world needs? Well, there was a day when I was in seminary uh, where I thought about it a lot. So I was at Bethel Sem working on my MDiv, and I was, I was out walking on a path in between classes. They've got this, these great little nature walks and and so I was just walking along there, and as I approached the campus, the college campus section, I saw these banners sitting up on the flagpoles, and they were really inspiring. Christ followers, character builders, learners, truth seekers. They were all the values of Bethel. And then I came upon one that made me pause and even laugh a little bit. World changers. So the snarky person in me immediately started thinking, hmm, like change the world? Really? When I was in college, I didn't even change my sheets. So now, now it's time for punchline roulette. Change the world? Really? In college, I changed my major, my girlfriend, my waistline, but I did not change the world. Change the world? Really? When I was in college, I couldn't even change my freshman roommate to be a nice person. Okay, I'm actually kidding. Stephen Franks, my freshman roommate, was a wonderful guy. Sorry, Stephen, I threw you under the bus for a, a joke. Sorry. He was a great guy. Okay? One more. Change the world? Really? When I was in college, I had a better chance of bringing peace to the Middle East or racial diversity to Minnetonka. Change the world? Really? So, now, Bethel's value did raise up an interesting question in me. And I think it's a question that sits in all of our minds. It's a question that rattles around in there and never really goes away. And it's a question that shapes what we do, what we think, and what we say. 
how do I make a difference? How do I make a difference? Now, you might not want to change the world, but I bet there is something in your life that you do want to make a difference in. It might be your kids. It might be your job. Maybe it's even here at church. But I guarantee there is somewhere in your life, in your sphere of influence, where you want to make a difference. So where is it? Where is it in your life? I want you to think right now of just a single place or person where you want to make a difference. Think about that. You got an idea? Just one. Now, let's go further. Okay? Let's go further. That's the what. Now it raises the question of the how. How do we make a difference? And here's the interesting thing. Every one of you has already answered that question. Every one of you has already answered the question of how do I make a difference. You've completed this, this statement. I make a difference by blank. See, I know you've already chosen that. You've already decided. You've already figured that out because it's what drives your thoughts, your decisions, your priorities. It's what drives you. So here are some examples. Here are some examples of how you might have answered that question. You might have filled in that blank if, let's say, it was your family, that your family is the, the place where you want to make a difference. So here are some things you might have answered. I make a difference by loving my spouse well. Or I make a difference by teaching my children discipline. I make a difference by working hard to provide for my family so they don't have to struggle. I make a difference by being a good son or daughter or young or my parents or in-laws. Those are just a few ways, but there are literally a million different answers for a million different situations. But see, not all answers are equally helpful or beneficial or even effective. So there's a great example of, of this going on right now in our news. There are groups in our country right now who say, I make a difference by overturning Roe v. Wade. And if you've been following the news, you know that's all over the news right now. And now see, that is true, that a difference will be made if Roe v. Wade is overturned. In fact, uh, experts estimate that abortions will decrease by 15 to 20% if Roe v. Wade is, is overturned. Now, here's the interesting thing, though. Social policy research actually shows that there are far more effective ways to reduce abortion. Comprehensive sex ed, including and talking about both abstinence and contraception. Guaranteed paid family leave, like many of the countries in Europe. Improved access to health care to low-income women. Or prioritizing racial equity in health care. All of those have been demonstrated, scientifically demonstrated, 
to reduce abortion by more than overturning Roe v. Wade. Now, this doesn't have to be a one or the other, but it does raise this question, what's the most effective way? What's the best way to make a difference? Because not all ways are equal. And so in our lives or in social policy, we need to be making sure that we're paying attention to the best ways to make a difference, not just our preferred ways. So it leaves us all with an obvious question. What's the best way to make a difference? What's the best way to make a difference? And if you're parents and you want to talk about your kids, I bet your answer to that question is different than your parents' answer to that question. And definitely different than their parents' answer to that question. And so it's a question that we all have to figure out. What's the best way to make a difference? Now, thankfully, we don't have to simply rely on our gut feelings or science or just shots in the dark. That God has actually given us guidance. There is guidance in Scripture that talks about the best way to make a difference. And we're going to look at one of those today. So it, it comes out of a passage that's probably familiar to many of you. It's salt and light from the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the, it's, it's a fairly common passage. If you've been around churches, you've probably heard some teaching or a Bible study on the salt and light out of the Sermon on the Mount. But for some of you, maybe this is a new one for you. And see... Here's the thing about the salt and light passage is there is a component of this. There's a critical piece that you're probably missing. So here's, here's the clickbait headline. You'll never believe what you're getting wrong about salt and light metaphor from Jesus. Are you intrigued? Do you want to click? Go ahead. Go ahead and click. There we go. Okay? So let's look at the passage. Here's Jesus. This is Matthew 5 toward the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount just after the Beatitudes. Matthew 5, 13 to 16. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So let's start with the salt metaphor. What in the salt does this really mean? And now nearly every sermon I've heard about this passage focuses on a few things. Maybe it's the qualities of salt. As a preservative, it's used... It was, used to preserve meats, think beef jerky. Um, it's a purifying agent, or maybe it's seasoning. So I, I've heard sermons, and I'm guessing you, if, you're, if you've been around church, you've probably heard some sermons like this, that Christians are to, to preserve against the decay of society. That's what it means to be salt. Christians are to fight, the mor fight for moral purity in an impure world. That's what it means to be salt. 
or Christians are to act as a kingdom seasoning to the world. That's what it means to be salt. And to be honest, I've never liked any of these explanations. And in fact, prior to a couple weeks ago, I had never really heard a great explanation to what this metaphor could mean. And because in my studying, I literally, I literally found a dozen different possibilities of properties or characteristics of salt that scholars and pastors have said, this is what it means to be Christian. And very little agreement. In fact, even out there in theological scholarship, there is little to no agreement about what this passage means. And then I stumbled across one explanation. And this one made sense, really for the first time in my Christian life. And the reason I liked it is because it used a very, very good principle of biblical interpretation. And that is, let the Bible interpret the Bible. If you ever run across a passage that's difficult, the best thing you could do is look for other passages that will explain it. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. And, and there's one piece, and there's a variation of this. There's one piece that is probably one of the best, is let the Old Testament interpret the New Testament. Because you see, I didn't get this advice as a new believer. As a young Christian in an a evangelical, predominantly white um, upper-class church, I didn't, I didn't get that advice. Because see, evangelical Christianity has a tendency to focus a lot on the New Testament and kind of ignore the Old Testament. Whereas the reality is, was the entire New Testament was written in light of the Old Testament. You almost can't even read the New Testament without understanding the Old Testament. And that so everything we read in anywhere in Scripture, but especially in the New Testament, should be read in light of the Old Testament. So what might salt and light mean? What might salt and light mean in light of the Old Testament, through the lens of the Old Testament? Well, let's start with salt. Let me read you a few verses. Leviticus 2.13. Season all your grain offerings with salt. Do not leave the salt of the covenant of your God out of your grain offerings. Add salt to your offerings. Which, by the way, this was a literal reference to adding salt to the burnt offerings of cows and birds and sheep uh, that, that they were doing at the temple. Numbers 18.19. Whatever is set aside from your holy offerings, the Israelites present to the Lord, I give, I give you your and your sons and daughters as your perpetual share. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord for both you and your offspring. Or we'll, we'll go to 2 Chronicles 13.5. Don't you know that the Lord, the God of Israel, has given the kingship of Israel to David and his descendants forever by a covenant of salt? What? How have I never heard this before? When Jesus called the disciples the salt of the earth, he was referencing back to a covenant of God. This phrase that was repeated 
over and over again. A covenant of salt. Now, this idea of a, the covenant of God, this is arguably the, one of the most important concepts in the entire Bible. In fact, what we translate as testament is actually the word covenant. So our Bible is literally divided into the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. That's how important it is. And, and, so, and I'll talk about covenant in a little bit. So when the Bible talks about establishing a covenant with God, with the Israelites, or that Jesus established a new covenant, that is a new promised relationship, that Jesus ushered in a new promised relationship with the people of God. That's, the, that's what you can think of as covenant. So why a covenant of salt? Why not a covenant of pepper or cover, covenant of, who knows, ketchup? I don't know. Why a covenant of salt? Well, there are a couple theories, and I think it's pretty solid. First of all, salt was arguably the most valuable mineral in existence at that time. In fact, it was even used as currency. That's how important it was. And secondly, salt was fundamentally used as a, a preserving agent for meats. They had no refrigeration. So if you catch fish and want to eat it a day later, we all know what happens with the fish sitting out after a day or two. No, you salt it. You turn it into fish jerky. And that's what they did. And so salt did act as a preserving agent. But now it's not about Christians preserving. It's about God's covenant, enduring, preserving the test of time, lasting forever. That's what a salt of covenant looks like. It's a covenant, a promise that lasts through the generations. Now let's go to light. Let's revisit the light metaphor. How, how are we supposed to understand that one? Well, let's go back to the Old Testament, okay? Because there are light references, and so we're going we're, we're to hit the, particularly the book of Isaiah, because there are some great light references in here. Here it is. Isaiah 9-2, a good old Christmas verse right here. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light on those living in the land of deep darkness. A light has dawned. And you've probably seen that on a Christmas card. That's a, that's a foreshadowing, a prophecy of Jesus. F Isaiah 49, 6. It is, it, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light to the Gentiles, which is all of us. Unless you come from a, a Jewish heritage, we're all Gentiles. Okay? It's that light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Or Isaiah uh, 60, 1 through 3. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord rises upon you. See, darkness covers the earth, and a thick darkness is over the people. But the Lord ri rises you rises upon you, and his glory appears over you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Okay? So now let's connect the dots. Let's connect the dots. 
So when Jesus was talking about salt and light, he was reminding them and us of our identity and our mission as the people of God. Salt and light is all about identity and mission as the covenant promised people of God. You are the salt of the earth. That's identity. You don't try to be salt. You are salt. You never have to try to be human. You are human. That's part of your identity. You don't try to be. You simply are. You are the light of the world. That's identity. You don't try to be light. You are light. Let your light shine before others. That's mission. Let them see your good works, your good deeds, and glorify God. That's mission. Identity and mission. See, this passage says that if you are a Jesus follower, you have an identity in Christ, and you have a mission in Christ. So the only questions that this passage talks about are really, are you living out of your true identity or a false identity? And are you living on mission or off mission? Don't lose your saltiness. That's living out of a false identity. It's a false self. I am what I do. If I'm pretty, I'll be more likable. I don't need anyone. I have to earn God's love. I deserve God's blessing. Those are all false selves. Those are salt losing its saltiness. And instead of saying that I exist in an enduring, promised covenant with God who loves me because of who I am, not what I do. Instead, you're saying something else. You're living out of a false identity. Instead of living out of that true covenant promise identity. How about the other one? Don't cover up your light. Don't put your light under a basket. That's ignoring your God-given mission. That's ignoring love others, love God. That's ignoring be a disciple, a student of Jesus. It's ignoring make disciples of others. It's ignoring do good works. It's ignoring be a blessing to others. See, Jesus' followers find their identity and mission in their promised covenantal relationship with God. If you are a Jesus follower, your true identity and your true mission is found in that promised relationship with God, that salt and light relationship, the covenant with God. All true growth comes out of that. 
all true spirituality comes out of that. All true growth, all true difference comes out of that. So I'd like to close with a, a video of a recent graduation. So it's graduation season right now, and this was a college graduation speech that went viral recently this past week. You may have seen it, if you want, and if you didn't, you're in for a treat. And so this, normally graduation speeches are about as interesting as rice and water, but this one was fascinating. And, and this, this was an example, it was an amazing example of a person who knew their true identity rejected the false identity that was being thrust upon her and knew what it looked like to live out their mission. Now, the, the young lady is a woman by the name of Elizabeth Bonker, and um, she's one of the valedictorians from Rollins College in Florida. Now, I don't know anything about Elizabeth other than this and what she shares in her speech. I don't know what her faith perspective is, is. But she, she borrows some language out of Scripture, so she must have some knowledge and background and possibly a relationship with Christ. But regardless, here's a person who is living in a true identity and living out her true God-given mission. And it's a wonderful example of what it looks like to refuse a false identity and to not ignore a God-given mission that he's given to you. So we'll close with this, and I'll be back up in a moment. Greetings to my fellow members of the elated class of 2022 and to the relieved parents, cheering siblings, and dear friends who supported us. Salutations to the caring faculty, administrators, and staff who fed our brains and nurtured our souls. I would also like to thank my fellow valedictorians Emily Curran, Sophia Fraz, Charlie Mellon, and Jessica Linemeyer for giving me the honor of addressing you. Rollins College Class of 2022, today we celebrate our shared achievements. I know something about shared achievements because I am affected by a form of autism that doesn't allow me to speak. My neuromotor issues also prevent me from tying my shoes or buttoning a shirt without assistance. I have typed this speech with one finger with a communication partner holding a keyboard. I am one of the lucky few non-speaking autistics who have been taught to type. That one critical intervention unlocked my mind from its silent cage, enabling me to communicate and to be educated, like my hero Helen Keller. My situation may be extreme, but I believe Rollins has shown all of us how sharing gives meaning to life. During my freshman year, I remember hearing a story about our favorite alumnus, Mr. Rogers. When he died, a handwritten note was found in his wallet. It said, life is for service. You have probably seen it on the plaque by Strong Hall. Life is for service. So simple, yet so profound. Classmates, you have shared your passion for service within our community. Our friends in the sororities and fraternities raise money for so many worthy causes. Our friends at Pinehurst weave blankets for the homeless. The examples are too numerous to list. Rollins has instilled in all of us that service to others gives meaning to our own lives and to those we serve. Viktor Frankl wrote about the power of sharing in his book, 
man's search for meaning. While suffering in the Nazi concentration camp at Auschwitz, he noted how, despite the horror, there were prisoners who shared their last crust of bread. He writes, Everything can be taken from a man, but one thing, the last of the human freedoms, to choose one's attitude in any given set of circumstances, to choose one's own way. We all have been given so much, including the freedom to choose our own way. Personally, I have struggled my whole life with not being heard or accepted. A story on the front page of our local newspaper reported how the principal at my high school told a staff member, the retard can't be valedictorian. Yet today, here I stand. Each day, I choose to celebrate small victories, and today, I am celebrating a big victory with all of you. The freedom to choose our own way is our fundamental human right, and it is a right worth defending, not just for us, but for every human being. I want to publicly thank Rollins College for taking a chance on me, for caring about every student, for being a place where kindness lives. Dear classmates, today we commence together. But from here, we will choose our own ways. For me, I have a dream. Yes, just like Martin Luther King Jr., I have a dream. Communication, for all. There are 31 million non-speakers with autism in the world who are locked in a silent cage. My life will be dedicated to relieving them from suffering in silence and to giving them voices to choose their own way. What is your dream? How will you use your Rollins education to fulfill your mission? How will you rise up to meet the unprecedented challenges of our time? Whatever our life choices, each and every one of us can live a life of service to our families, to our communities, and to the world. And the world can't wait to see our light shine. So, my call to action today is simple. Tear off a small piece from your commencement program and write Life is for Service on it. Yes. We gave you the pens to really do it. Let's start a new tradition. Take a photo and post it on social media. Then put it in your wallet or some other safe place, just as Mr. Rogers did. And when we see each other at our reunions, we can talk about how our commencement notes reminded us to serve others. We are all called to serve as an everyday act of humility, as a habit of mind. To see the worth in every person we serve, to strive to follow the example of those who chose to share their last crust of bread. For to whom much is given, much is expected. God gave you a voice. Use it. And no, the irony of a non-speaking autistic encouraging you to use your voice is not lost on me. Because if you can see the worth in me, then you can see the worth in everyone you meet. My fellow classmates, I leave you today with a quote from Alan Turing who broke the Nazi encryption code to help win World War II. Sometimes, it is the people no one imagines anything of, who do the things no one can imagine. Be those people. Be the light. Fiat Lux. Thank you. That's what it looks like to refuse a false identity. That's what it looks like to be on mission. So what about you? Are you living out of your true covenantal promise relationship with God? Is that your identity? Is that your mission? 
And if you're not sure what your identity is in Christ, that's something worth finding out. And if you're not sure what your mission is, what you're called to, take Elizabeth's advice. Well, really take Mr. Rogers' advice. Serve. Serve anywhere. Serve anyone. And in that, let God reveal his mission for you, his calling for you as part of his kingdom. Join me in prayer. God, the world needs your love. God, we need your love. We need more of you in our cities, in our families, in our hearts. And thank you that you give abundantly and you give good gifts. And you give freely. Lord, so help us. Help us know who we truly are in you, in Christ. And give us a mission. Give us a mission to join. Give us a mission to start. Give us a mission to serve. And from all of that, an overabundance of your love, an overabundance of selfless serving. Let us grow, not just in campuses or people, but let us grow in love, in faith, in hope. Let us grow in maturity. Let us grow in heart, mind, and soul. So thank you, God. You are a good God and a big God. And we pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.